The Guardian. Welcome to Media Talk. Coming up this week, the Met backs down after it tries to force The Guardian to reveal its sources in the phone hacking affair. We'll discuss official secrets and the freedom of the press. Also in the podcast, as Rupert Murdoch offers the Dowler family a multi-million pound settlement, we get the thoughts of former Sunday Times editor Harold Evans about the Dirty Diggers' future in the British media. The situation for Murdoch is that I think politically his influence in the United Kingdom is finished and it wouldn't be surprised me if he sold the papers. And we hear from New York Times columnist David Carr, the reluctant star of new documentary Page One. Yeah, if you look at the average newsroom, it's full of pasty-faced white people like me and there they are typing away in cubes and looking at monitors. What about that doesn't say movie? I mean, that just, mmm, that sounds so great. I'm John Plunkett, and this is Media Talk from The Guardian. We're back in the studio this week after our trip to Cambridge. My Holiday Inn Express breakfast is repeating like Top Gear on Dave, and we're kicking off with matters closer to home. The Metropolitan Police were this week forced to abandon their attempts to make The Guardian reveal its sources in the phone-hacking scandal. Scotland Yard had tried to obtain a court order under the Official Secrets Act, but in the end, it was they who were summoned, appearing behind closed doors in a meeting of the Home Affairs Select Committee. The episode caused plenty of fury throughout Fleet Street, where even Richard Littlejohn joined the ranks of those condemning the police for their attack on a free press. Well, someone who's been following the ins and outs of all this is Mr Dan Sabber, The Guardian's Head of Media and Technology. Dan, how did The Guardian end up being the target of a police investigation? Well, there's a good, there's a very good question. What on earth were the police doing, trying to use or threaten to use the official secrets act, to be precise, against us? According to the Met, it's all, it all dates back to the Millie Dowler story. It all dates back to the Guardian broke that story, of course, and that was a story that changed everything, led to the closure of the News of the World, resignation of Rebecca Brooks, and indeed a near three million pound payment to the Dowlers uh, was emerged this week. That was a, clearly a story in the public interest by anyone's definition. Uh, two two journalists revolved in writing it, Nick Davis, and from the point of view of this, sorry episode, Amelia Hill. The Met Police were unhappy with what they call gratuitous leaks from their inquiry into phone hacking operation Wheating, including leaked information that led to the apparently led to the production of this story. And they chose to target um, Amelia Hill. Uh, they also chose to target an officer who worked for the Met Police, who w- worked on the inquiry, and he was arrested. Amelia was questioned under caution, and then they demanded her notebooks, presumably, I don't know, to try and Im- burnish their case against against the officer, perhaps. Who knows? But it's a most irregular, unusual demand to ask for a journalist's notebooks. And the police seem to forget or, or not appreciate that well, journalists uh, you know, have a, uh, you know, have a, not just a sort of... A sort of ethical duty we like to talk about to protect our sources, but it's enshrined in the much maligned Press Complaints Commission Code Number Fourteen that you know we really must protect our sources. You know we're not some sort of evidence gathering arm of the state, uh, and we're always going to resist that demand. And the key thing here, you know, the most unusual thing, was the use of the Official Secrets Act, which um, usually there's a public interest defence uh, against. Uh uh, having to reveal your sources, but in this case, uh, there is no such defence when, when the uh, when the Secret Act comes into play. Th- that was what was so disturbing about this. Now, <laughs> this is quite interesting, and we all had to learn how to become amateur experts on on, on the law here. And my understanding changed about nineteen times over the course of a few days. But luckily, we can spare listeners that excitement. But what, what happened was they served us with what's called a you know regular production order, a request for evidence under the Police and Criminal Evidence Act, absolutely standard. There's a public interest defence for that. They would have known that any self-respecting journalist or media organisation organization would have said get lost you're not seeing our notes you know journalism is independent of the police thank you very much uh, what however they did was they alleged 
that what had happened was that there were information was leaked out from the cops in breach of the Official Secrets Act. Uh, I think section sections four, section five, fairly obscure bits of the uh, Official Secrets Act. And the point here is very simple, which is once you start alleging breach of the Official Secret Act, Secrets Act, which is all about kind of espionage and state secrets and all that sort of thing, you are there is no public interest defence. In other words, they created a kind of hidden in there was this nuclear bomb designed to sort of you know destroy our defenses and effectively create an environment where the police i don't know whether they meant to do this but effectively create a situation where the police could compel the disclosure of information from media organizations very troubling and that's why richard littlejohn which is a tremendous friend of the guardian he of course uh, richard littlejohn and the sunday times and the financial times and the daily mirror and practically anyone serious on fleet street uh, came out and said this is a dangerous thing Little John, uh, I think he advises readers to, to pour themselves a, a stiff drink before revealing that he'd come out in support of the Guardian. Mm, double whiskey, I hope, yes. Um, and the extraordinary thing was that we're not talking about the defence of the realm here, we're talking about uh, criminality within a media organisation. So it's a Well, it seems, ast- it seems astonishing that the, 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 the Millie Dowler story, so important that it was, uh, 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 you know, so clearly in the public interest, you know, became somehow gratuitous or all information that was helped to put it together was somehow gratuitous in the police mind and that the guardian which had done its best to sort of conduct all these investigations into the interphone hacking and the the, the police tabloid media nexus uh, find itself on the receiving end uh, and it was an extraordinary thing for bernard hogan howe new commissioner just been named just 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 starting uh suddenly he's getting into nothing now really on the issue that did it force the resignation of his predecessor so what on earth uh, you know he was thinking well what we were told was he, well, he wasn't really informed that it was taken the decision was taken at a more junior level but you know, we went to press on Friday, uh, Saturday, I'm sorry. Friday was when we published online. We went to press on Saturday. And that was when we really got going with the story. And it took the Met until Tuesday to sort of just conclude, and late on Tuesday at that, to conclude, well, it's all looking a bit bad, isn't it? And I think someone could have rung the Met Police Commission and he could have decided a bit faster, couldn't he? Well, you mentioned Hogan Howe there. I and mean, the senior officers in the Met appear to have taken what you might call the Murdoch approach in the sense that they, they're saying they didn't know anything about it. I mean, do you see it as a, as a cock-up, or, or, or is there sort of a, a, a more uh, sort of dis- disturbing conspiracy here? Is this, is this the start of the, the backlash against the media that some people fear? Ah, well, our best guess on this particular circumstance was it was done, our best understanding is it was done by a relatively junior officer kind of being, in a junior lawyer and just being that little bit, bit too clever perhaps and not thinking through the consequences uh but as i say and i'm prepared one's prepared to accept that but you know when this story blew up on the friday it did take an awful long time for the police to kind of start slapping it down now there's a broader point here or two broader points one of them is that the police are clearly going for a kind of sort of hat-filled moment and at risk of overreacting in the wake of the phone hacking scandal and now hogan howe is talking about a new sort of code of conduct where where police and journalists can't meet in a bar or 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 over lunch they can only meet in an office setting which i mean if the police really want to force that i suppose so but it seems slightly absurdly draconian really what we're talking about is the police not taking bribes things that are already against the law not meeting a journalist at a pub which doesn't strike me as the most heinous offence and as part of the sort of warp and weft of 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 journalism of crime reporting and then secondly what we've also seen this week is uh or has emerged uh, this week is we've seen that the police have separately been uh, chasing after the broadcasters for unbroadcast riot-related footage uh, to help build the case against more wretched rioters. And, and, 
I mean, the police are entitled to ask. What's amazing, though, is the broadcasters seem to be cheerfully handing it over. And again, here we are. We've got a situation again where, in this case, broadcasters seem to be being asked to be evidence-gathering arms of the state. And that's not what journalism's about. Well, back to phone hacking. Also this week, we've seen that News International made a a multi-million pound offer to the family of Millie Dowler. What's the latest on that? Uh, a deal, deal close but not done I think uh, uh, what was interesting was that story came out an interesting little bit so uh, we wrote that, the, that the, there was something like somewhere a 2 million plus settlement offer on the table which rapidly sort of firmed up to being a sort of 3 million pound package for the family and and this is the bit that News International were, had been very eager to agree from the off in the private negotiations and very eager to brief out uh, albeit later, later the evening the story broke on Monday which is that Rupert Murdoch had made a personal one million pound, who would make a personal one million pound donation to a charity, the Dowler's Choice. Um, which, you know, yeah, it's a step of contrition, all right, and not everyone has a million pounds. Um, I mean, Rupert Murdoch does have a lot of money, however, and I think more to the point, although this does set up a much higher bar for settlement payouts than we've seen elsewhere, the McCanns, for example, who were libeled in 100 plus articles. Uh, by express newspapers they got five hundred fifty thousand pounds in damages so let's just sort of get a, a bit of perspective here uh, uh this total package of three million pounds it's a big sum of money but it does also set a cap on any phone hacking payouts it's a higher cap i think than there was before than sienna miller who got a hundred thousand pounds in settlement but it does set a cap and it's uh, even at that level it's not the kind of level that's punitive and i think the question is you know, should there be, if newspapers really transgress, should there be punitive damages that hurt or should there be damages that are just a bit annoying? And also this week, you've been speaking to the, the famously uh, media shy uh, Harold Evans. Well, you've got to love him. He's, uh, I didn't realise that Harold Evans uh, older than Rupert Murdoch at 83, and he won't thank me for saying that. He's got a new, he, he's got a new preface. Well, he's re-releasing Good Times, Bad Times, the old classic of his unhappy editorship of the Times in 81, 82. He's written, he, he wrote a new preface and then rewrote it with some new bits in for The Guardian, and we, we, we ran it on Monday, and you can see it online. And he was chairing this sort of chairing an event of kind of media luminaries, various editors, and what should we do to sort out the press? And afterwards, I spoke to Sir Harold Evans, and I, I started by asking whether the Rupert Murdoch, who we all saw as having the most humble day of his life in that memorable select committee back in July, was the same man he remembered working with at the Times all those years ago. I was in the select committee hearing when he was attacked by the Burma Shave retailer and I thought that Rupert Murdoch actually was pretty good in evidence and was very emphatic and clear much better I thought than his son who was using phrases about distinguished outside counsel and so on and uh, I thought it was kind of funny when he lectured the the committee on the fact that in large organizations you delegate details to the plebs, to the, um, to, you know, to, the, to, the, to the underlings, in this case, paying off villains, which I thought was so amusing. Oh, we just delegate that kind of thing. No, but Rupert Murdoch actually, although some people thought he was imitating Junior in The Sopranos uh, as being <laughs> beyond um, prosecution, beyond persecution, beyond any kind of reprisals because he'd lost his mind, Rupert Murdoch's mind was as sharp as ever, in my view. Was that the Murdoch you knew, the, the Murdoch that's undone by this hacking saga? Is that the Murdoch of, of 1981, 1982? Uh, Dan, the important thing about Murdoch is there are many Murdochs. The uh, best classic case of this is when he was trying to buy the Sun-Times in Chicago, and the, uh, the Marshall Fields, who was selling it, was so impressed by it, the fact that he was like a banker, 
And then he had to fly to California to witness support of the other member of the family who was a hippie. And the hippie thought Rupert Murdoch was a hippie. So he's a chameleon, a man of enormous charm, and also can be brutal. So Rupert Murdoch, I saw at the time, was both visionary. Even then he was predicting uh, the importance of satellites, of television and film, and predicting all that. He was brilliant, quite brilliant. At the same time as having that brilliance, he also had this ruthless determination to impose his will. Why did he get it so wrong when it came to the news of the world, though? Well, I don't know whether... If you ask me, did Rupert Murdoch tell them to hack phones, I don't think anybody could prove it. Uh, I think the deeper question than that, really, is, and, and it's been hinted at, but I'll be explicit about it, the corporate culture that's created by Rupert Murdoch is one where ethical standards and conduct are not held in high repute. So people absorb that. If, they work, if you're working in a monastery, you tend to absorb the habits of the monastery. If you're working for News International, certainly in those days when I was there, I saw so many men absolutely terrified and doing things that they knew were not right. What about James Murdoch? Do you think the succession is clear for him, or is he now really tainted by this phone hacking saga? Well, James Murdoch was an enormously capable executive for Sky TV. No question about it. Everybody I talk to testifies to that. And I think, to be in a curious way, I think that he got completely lost in the news of the world. Uh, was saying things at the select committee. I don't think he really realized he was saying. I can't go into the details. But they implicated the news of the world in the hacking scandal earlier, by the way he phrased it. If he knew what he was saying, he was doing that. And if he didn't know what he was saying, it proves the point that he wasn't really central to it, although he did, of course, approve the compensation. I think he has the same over-aggressive, vindictive attitude that runs through the company. And very lastly, what do you think, you've chaired a debate here about sort of what next for the press in Britain, if you like. What is the right answer, or is the right answer not to overreact? In fact, the system we've had is not a bad one. It's just one or two newspaper groups, or one newspaper group in particular has been uh, at fault. I would like to see uh, the monopolies law in, in force. Now, obviously, we're going through a difficult economic time for newspapers, but the power to intimidate a government uh, Rupert Murdoch and Mrs. Thatcher in the beginning, mutual support society, breaking the monopolies law to suit him, followed by John Major, who was less uh, in a collusive relationship, followed by Tony Blair, who was very much in a collusive relationship, followed by Golden Brown, who was, and almost by Don Cameron, who pulled back just at the moment uh, when he saw the precipice yawn open for him following the Millie Downer case, which the Guardian exposed. So the situation for Murdoch basically is now is that I think politically his influence in the United Kingdom is finished, and it wouldn't be surprised me if he sold the papers, especially since the Times, which I think is very well edited uh, by James Harding, loses money. And the sun makes a lot, and he's closed the news of the world. So it wouldn't be surprise me if he actually pulled out of the United Kingdom. Time now to introduce a familiar friend as we round up a few of the other stories making the media headlines this week. Here with me in the pod, I've got Trevor Dan, former chief executive of the Radio Academy. Hello, Plunkers. I was just uh, thinking about uh, Rupert Murdoch, because I'm making this series for Radio 2 at the moment called Sounds of the 20th Century. 
and uh, I've been working on 1986, which is the year of the whopping strike, and there's a, an interview with him where he gets asked what he thinks is the future of journalism. And he says that journalism will be more about journalists and that journalists themselves, who, if you remember at the time, were objecting to being moved from Fleet Street out to Wapping, would have a much better time and have much more freedom because they'd be able to use word processors instead of typewriters. That's only 1986. Word processors. It's, it's the future. Uh, and you won't be allowed to smoke at your desks. Indeed not. Um, well, let's start with something we couldn't discuss in our show last week, and that is uh, Johan Hari, who has admitted to plagiarism and all sorts of other naughtiness. He's taking an unpaid leave of absence from the Independent for the rest of the year, some of which he'll spend at journalism school in America. Um, now, D- Dan, what did you make of this? Johan has apologised for plagiarising the work of others, and uh, he also as- assumed a fake identity to change people's uh, Wikipedia entries, not always, uh, not always for the better. Do you think it was a, a suitable punishment? No. If that had happened to me, I would have expected... If I had done that, I would have expected to be dismissed, and I think the Independent have been very mild where Johan is concerned. He's handed back his Orwell Prize, um, and he won't be back on the paper until 2012. Yeah, but he's going to... I mean, he's, being, you know, he's going to journalism school, I think, at his own expense, uh, Columbia, I think, we think. Um, but, I mean, it just feels like it's... a reward for failure really i don't know what you think trevor but it feels a bit i couldn't understand i mean in in any broadcasting organization i could think of he would have been long gone by now so i don't know whether he's got something over someone (laughs) of the independent well it's a strange one isn't it it just seems uh the central crime apart from the wikipedia uh changing the entries on wikipedia was uh, you know lifting lifting quotes and lifting large sections indeed whole chunks of other people's interviews and passing it off as his own but i mean uh, surely any journalist has come across that where you interview someone where um you know they say um they don't give you quite as good a quote as you've read before. So you just refer to a quote in a previous article. There's no, no suggestion you would lift it and pretend they said it to you at that time. Um, yeah, it's, outra- it's just outrageous. Uh, look, it's one thing, if someone says something very inarticulate, you, you, you don't quote ums and ahs uh, in a newspaper article, but you certainly don't lift a quote from A, another place, and then pass it off as an original. And, and look, look what happened. In the end, you know, the readers found out on the internet and there's quite a backlash. Is it just just not another aspect of the whole kind of failure of journalism that you saw with phone hacking? It's the, the, the culture of, I can get away with it, so I probably will. And it was a big test as well for Chris Blackhurst early on in his editorship of The Independent. Uh, look, I think that's right. Just, just to Trevor's point, I mean, I, I think the boot is very firmly on our foot in print. Now, it wasn't all that long ago that, you know, uh, television was under pressure because of all the sort of TV fakery scandals and all those call-in scandals. But, I mean, absolutely feels very different. I think you make a good point about the sort of standards um, expecting a broadcaster. As regards Chris Blackhurst, yeah, it's an, look, it's, an, it's certainly a significant early test. And I just wonder how the readers will respond to Ian Harry when they see his name in the paper. I mean, I think that said, Chris Blackhurst's uh, editorship of The Independent has been very bright and energetic. You can see a stronger sort of set of news values on the page. It's less about just chucking some words on the front and more about, I think, having a news story to back it up. So um, I think, you know, uh, no disrespect to Chris, but it's an unusual decision. Uh, another uh, controversy of, of sorts was uh, Jonathan Dimbleby's admission that he'd, uh, he'd dabbled with a bit of cocaine uh, in his youth. Now, Trevor, we were wondering if this was uh, just an elaborate move to try and move from Radio 4 to 6 Music, <laughs> get down with the kids or get down with the, the 30-somethings. I've never really understood this whole uh, obsession that um, all journalists and broadcasters have with trying to find out that when somebody was younger, they did something they might have been ashamed of. You know, the idea that all politicians, all presenters, all, frankly, you know, members of the Church of England have never done anything involving pharmaceuticals or drink or um, 
what have you is so absurd it's just uh, it, it doesn't make any sense at all to me and the the prurience with which people report it um, is, is, is a nonsense considering the areas of that they choose to write about particularly in the tabloid press I th- I, it's complete non-story Complete non-story. Well, in that case, I'll carry on. But, I mean, for, you know, other, other BBC radio <laughs> presenters have got into trouble for, 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 you know, taking drugs in the past. But um, presumably, as this is 30, 40, possibly 50 years ago, uh, there'll be well, no yes, further repercussions. Even, right. I mean, even Johnny Walker's probably the most recent thing. Uh, you know, he, he, was, he was sent off to um, Radio 2's equivalent of journalism school. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, does, it does seem rather anachronistic, really. I think, actually, increasingly... I don't think there was a time when actually the mere fact of having taken drugs was possibly enough to sort of put your broadcasting career in jeopardy. And I think that's no, I think that's no longer the case now. Or at least people are. I don't well, know. John people Peel have lived their lives. John Peel talked about it in the 1960s on air, and you know there was there was some tutting. But as long as you said it, so I've grown out of all that now, you kind of got away with it. So for a man of uh, Jonathan Dimbleby's great age uh, to say that he did something naughty 40 years ago, just I, I don't get it. Well, he mentioned this while publicising his new BBC Two show, so he, he could have raised the bar in terms of what PR types expect to, uh, to get on the front pages. Yeah, I suppose so. We had Simon Cowell the other day trying to publicise the American X Factor, didn't he, by announcing he'd been in a threesome and it was kind of cool. So, I mean, I... I can think of many words if I'd been in a threesome and cool probably wouldn't be the one way I'd describe it. Well, I, don't, I mean, I sort of... I mean, this is a good point, though. It just does feel like a drip, drip of endlessly gratuitous, uh, to coin a word, uh, revelation just in order to drum up a bit of publicity for oneself. Well, Trevor, you mentioned uh, John Peel there, and uh, one of the uh, new innovations at this year's Radio Festival coming up end of next month is the the John Peel Lecture. One of um, well, it looks like a good festival this year. I have to say, some some decent names. You've been speculating about who's doing the John Peel Lecture. Well, you? I said Keith Richards. It was sort of tongue in cheek, but uh, most people and it immediately hasn't been announced, has it? No, so it still could be Keith Richards, but I think unlikely. I know who it is, but I'm really? not allowed to tell you. Okay, uh, but it's it's somebody on a par with Keith Richards. I can mm. promise you that. I think the festival is fantastic, and having chaired it myself during a time when commercial radio wasn't very interested in taking part because it was very much looking inwards and you know eating itself up. I think under John Myers, the um, the festival has been able to get a lot more commercial radio people involved and it's all to to, to the good um he's put together i think uh, and i'm not involved at all not even on the committee anymore so i can say this i think he's put together a fantastic uh, collection of top industry bods like ashley Tabor and d ford and of course the director general of the bbc so it's not just a commercial thing um and some interesting people who are practitioners so on the one hand you've got you know Robbie Savage and uh, Ronnie Wood and those kind of people who are sort of new to radio and are giving it a bit of glitter I think at the moment and then on the other hand um, you've got uh, Elvis Duran who is the the big name in breakfast radio in New York who's coming over to do a talk and be, be interviewed by Steve Wright which should be fantastic but also uh, he's doing a masterclass and people will be really interested in that so I think it will be a, um, a more outward looking festival I think John's vision is that um, the the radio business has been very inward looking and it's talked to itself about issues that are very dull uh, like DAB too much and that this is about saying hey radio we're over here it's great and getting guys like you to write about it well you mentioned DAB I think this year's festival is going to be a deliberately DAB free affair I mean uh 
as you say, we've talked about it many, many times before, but is, is it sensible to ignore it? Because it is still the giant elephant in the room, and the issues around it haven't uh, appeared to be uh, not very far uh, well, closer I had a, to being solved. an interesting experience this week. Uh, if you were at a certain level in radio, the first time you got a demonstration of DAB was at a festival many, many years ago in Birmingham where we were all put on a bus and driven around Birmingham and shown that even if we were parked outside a high-rise building or if we went down one of those many tunnels and underpasses in Birmingham, the DAB signal was still robust. Ah, Let me tell you, you can drive through the middle of Birmingham now and it keeps going off. So it's not all it was cracked up to be even then. it's 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 the future. Um, and Trevor, a quick word on um, Absolute Radio. Is it any closer to that changing hands? Or do you think well, what we hear is that it's not for sale anymore, and there are probably commercial reasons why, uh, which, which is they just couldn't get uh, um, an offer that was high enough to make it worth selling. But I think the fact that it's not on the market, if that is true, is a great tribute to Clive Dickens and the people who work there, who have consistently put investment of ideas and talent into it, which is why it sounds better than it used to. And I think it's on an an upward curve is absolute, not just as a radio station, but as a brand. And I think it's got through its difficult stages and I think it might grow. And uh, having that um, problem removed, I think will will encourage them to be even more creative. Uh, And I think, Trevor, you make a good point, or certainly from the way that you've described the festival programme there. I I think radio does need to be talked about uh, a lot more, uh, and and certainly away from that rather dreary conversation about DAB, which has gone on for a long time, and I think DAB is the most enormous distraction, and we should be really talking about programmes and quality and, and so on. And people listen to radio in enormous you know enormous numbers with great affection but it doesn't punch through as it's you know it doesn't punch through as the medium that we sort of write about or talk about except in sort of little columns sort of tucked away in in in, in review or culture sections and i think we need to do something about that and and, and really energize the sector i think particularly when the some of the commercial guys you know they've been accused perhaps of not being investing enough in content but we ought to sort of encourage them and uh, and be supportive where they do and, and try and encourage sort of a virtuous circle around sort of content investment. I well, I think we've always had a bit of a chip on our shoulder in, uh, in truth. We, you know, um, you can tell this by the way that even at the very top of radio journalism, people will often think, who do we get who can confer authority on our piece? I know somebody from a newspaper. Uh, when I was at Radio 1, this used to really annoy me because if Radio 4 wanted to cover a pop music story, they'd always say, well, joining us now is a man from the New Musical Express. They would never think of talking to Radio 1, although there were people there who were probably better across the story. Um, I think we need to be prouder of what we do, prouder of the fact that we do have this, you know, 93 and 94% of people listening to the radio at all, and the fact that in recent months and years we have begun to attract... um, you know, bigger people to um, to shine a light on on what we do. So I think we, I think the radio industry should, thank you for that, be confident. Well, thanks to the two Dans. That's Trevor Dan and Dan Saber. I know you two have got to rush off now. Thank you, John. Thank you, John. We're back after this. Now, finally this week, a bit of Hollywood glitz and glamour. Well, sort of. David Carr is an award-winning columnist at the New York Times, and he's also the undoubted star of a new fly-on-the-wall documentary about the paper called Page One. David was in London this week, and our man Dan Saber, him again, got a few minutes with him to chew the fat. He started by asking whether David was enjoying the transition from salty old hack to matinee idol, and whether the movie had made any difference to the fortunes of the New York Times. Oh, certainly. I took a private jet over here. I'm staying at the poshest hotel in town. I'm, I'm eating caviar. No, we're, we're still 
we're still struggling day to day. It's a hand to hand combat. There's a lot of really talented uh, competitors out there, but there's not this feeling of, whoa, where are we? What's going to happen? What is it? And you know what? We we may have to grow or uh, or, or or contract at certain points. But when you say existential, I think that's correct. It's like there was a certain point where it's, are we going to be around? And I think the answer to that is yes. Do you think it's a time where we don't print newspapers on Monday to Friday or some such? I think in the U.S., and I don't know the U.K. market that well, but you're going to see a lot of regional papers, which have been particularly hard hit by both secular and cyclical changes in media. You know, Craigslist sort of whacked off classifieds and real estate and automotive will never be back like they once were extremely local ads you have google moving ferociously into that space so for regional newspapers i i do think that the idea of printing every single day in detroit they don't do that for larger national papers i do think that there will continue to be a printed product but it will become a luxury artifact and one that's um capable of conveying status. I mean, I, I love walking around with my iPad, but it doesn't really say anything about me other than the fact that I had enough money to buy a gadget. Like in the U.S., if you look at um, Dave Eggers did a $15 newspaper, mm. uh, um, it was a beautiful thing. It had the wingspan of an eagle and it was 250 pages. We're probably not going to put one of those out every single day. But I think there is going to be a high-quality commodification of, of, of daily journalism every single day, but it's going to cost a lot. Uh, and you're characterizing the film, I think, as the, sort of the, the, the print guy, sort of, uh, sort of slightly offset against one of your younger colleagues who's a bit more web-savvy. Is that, is that a fair characterization of you? Is that the kind of drama that's playing out in the, in, in the newsroom between someone like you who believes in that kind of more curated approach to journalism, if you will, and, and you know, someone else who believes in producing and and consuming news all at once. I talked about my younger colleague, Brian Stelter, who, for whom producing and consuming media don't seem to be discrete acts and how it all is part of one virtuous circle. I have to stop reading in order to start typing, and I guess that makes me old. Um, one of the things that I worry about is, is, as I sit in this data stream and take in everything that's being put out by the people I follow on Twitter or what comes in on my RSS feeds, that I'm going to lose my ability to think long thoughts, that I will become good at short, rapid bursts of information and news, uh, some of which may be even longer than a tweet. But I've done a little, some book forwards lately and some magazine writing, and I got to say those muscles are a little creaky. What does that mean for media brands? Because you're sort of saying you've ended the day... No, you, you were telling us that you know they knowing all this information, but not knowing where you heard it from or even how, really. Yeah, I I do think that in terms of existential threats, that's the biggest one. Is you have, I mean, you have so many brands going direct with consumers and uh, producing media themselves, and I find that appalling. My kids could care less. It's just like if the information is useful, where would I care? I come from, but if you look at like. Uh, the luxury band uh, LVMH owns uh, Pret-a-Porter, and, and that's like a $400 million business, and they're in the media business, and it's owned by a brand, and you can transact right on the spot. And 
I worry over and over that our status as middle persons, as people that are going to stand between the consumers and say, you should see this movie, you should believe this politician, you should keep an eye on this city councilman, that again and again, governments, brands, individuals are going direct with consumers, and our role as uh, middlemen is, is somewhat in peril. Well, maybe you've got a new chance to, I don't know, win an Oscar or something like that. Are you, are you confident? You've written about the Oscars. You must be confident enough for an Academy Award now, yeah, in a documentary that at least 24 people will watch. Um, I care a lot about the Oscar stuff. Uh, I, I did it for uh, four years uh, full time. When the movie came out, I was convinced it would get shortlisted mm-hmm. and thought it might even make the five. Then the New York Times reviewed it and clobbered it. Just smashed it flat. So did that kill its chances? And if if I was put on my Oscar prognosticator hat, which mm-hmm. is what I was doing for four years, I would say that that, that hurt its chances quite a bit. Not dead, mm-hmm. still moving. We'll see. So don't look don't look for me on, on a carpet anytime soon. David Carr there. Page one, A Year Inside the New York Times, is out in cinemas now, but possibly not in multiplexes. Boom. You can leave your feedback on page one and everything else we've discussed over on the blog. That's guardian.co.uk slash media talk. The podcast is produced by Ben Green and I'm John Plunkett. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.